Well, good morning. I, I told you that a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michael and I were able to go to a, a pastor's conference up in Louisville. 10,000 pastors gathered in, in one room, and it was the Yum Center up there. And we, we sang that song right before, I think it was Piper, right before Piper got up to speak, and he spoke for an hour and a half. So I'm feeling motivated. But, but, but not to worry, because uh, this is our uh, volunteer fair, and we're actually going to, the reason I'm up here so early is we're going to let you out uh, a little bit early. Well, today, if I wanted to write a letter to someone in the world, this world of some seven and a half billion people, it would only take about six identifying criteria for that letter to be delivered. Let, Let me explain. Let's say I was writing to someone living in the United States. By writing USA on the outside of the envelope, I would have just eliminated seven billion people on the planet. Well, let's say that person lives in New York, okay, a state of some 20 million people. By writing New York on the envelope, I've just eliminated the other 300 million people living in the U.S., Let's say that person lived in, in, in New York City. I mean, that's a big city, a city of 8 million. But by writing New York City on the envelope, I've just eliminated another 12 million people from, from the rest of the state. I mean, do you see that in three criteria, those three simple criteria on the screen, I've just gone from 7.5 billion people to a mere 8 million. And then by adding one more criteria, the street, I've just eliminated, I'm assuming, uh, well over 7 million more people. I suppose it is Manhattan, who knows, but but, but by adding the house number, criteria number five, I have now reduced the number of people on the planet to about three or four people living at that address. And by adding the sixth criteria, the name, criteria number six, I've just gone from seven and a half billion people on the planet to one person. Now, I know that some of you are sitting there saying, dude, haven't you ever heard of email? I can go from 7 billion to to one with a single criteria, one unique email address, whatever. Uh, Here's my point. When you study the Old Testament, you find that there is not one, there are not six, but there are some 300 prophecies, criteria, if you will, that identify the Messiah who, who was to come. And when you study the New Testament, you find that this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled every single one of them. I, even if you combine some of the prophecies, you know, because different prophets said some of the same things, you still have dozens and dozens of prophecies that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled perfectly. The the statistical probability that he would do so in his lifetime is astronomical. In fact, it is beyond mathematical possibility. Let me explain that. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested if someone wanted to, let's let's just say if Jesus wanted to, he could have spent a significant amount of time studying those Old Testament um, prophecies for the first 30 years of his life. I mean, you know, he's sawing boards and driving nails, studying the Torah on the side. I I suppose he could have reviewed all of those Messianic prophecies and, and orchestrated events to fulfill, well, some of them. For example... 
He could have chosen to ride into Jerusalem on, a, on the cult of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He could have done that. I, I suppose he could have summoned the strength to, to be silent before his accusers later in his life per Isaiah 53. And you go, wow, that's, that's two prophecies, not very impressive. You do understand that there were probably other people who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But let's face it. Orchestrating the prophetic events around his birth and his death would not have been easy. For example, how could he orchestrate his birth in Bethlehem per Micah 5.2 when his parents lived up north in Nazareth? How do you do that? Well, we remember that God sovereignly arranged through the emperor Caesar Augustus to tax the entire world just to get one pregnant woman from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Well, how, could, how could Jesus, for that matter, orchestrate being born of a woman per Genesis 3.15? Okay, I'll give you that one. Um, but but, but how, could you, how could you possibly orchestrate being born of a virgin woman per Isaiah 7.14? That's a little bit more impressive, don't you think? How could he make sure that he was a he was a descendant of Abraham? And you go, well, I mean, he was a Jew, but true enough. But remember, we're reducing, we, we've just eliminated an awful an awful lot of the world. And and then we remember that Abraham had not one but eight sons, one from Hagar and who was Ishmael, and, and one from Sarah, and, and then six more from Keturah. But 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 we're told that the Messiah, you see, would come through Isaac. And, and Isaac, you see, had had two sons, but the Messiah would come through Jacob. And, and Jacob would have 12 sons, but the Messiah would come through Judah and, and one of Judah's descendants, um, David. A, a bit challenging, I think, to ensure that you, you were of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. and uh, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. A little difficult to do that prenatally, don't you think? You see, we're using this criteria that is throughout the Old Testament to narrow it down from millions to thousands and ultimately to one, to the one. You see, not everyone could be the Christ. The criteria was, was fairly specific. <laughs> Further, how could you orchestrate the events of your death. I mean, I mean, I mean, how could you make sure that you were crucified? You know, pierced hands and feet per uh, Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. And how could you ensure that not a bone would be broken per Psalm 34 when the criminals crucified on either side of you had their legs broken? For that matter, how could you even ensure that you would be put to death with criminals, but buried with the rich, per Isaiah 53? And how could you make sure after your death that your side was pierced, per Zechariah chapter 12? And how could you make sure that the soldiers would gamble for your clothing, per Psalm 22? And somebody, please tell me, how could you ensure that you would rise from the dead per Psalm 16 and Psalm 49? That's kind of a neat trick. There could be no doubting that Jesus was the fulfillment of messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. 
This is like a letter addressed specifically to him. All of the criteria pointed to him and to him alone. No, no one could orchestrate these events. I mean, certainly those events that were beyond his control. Well, unless maybe they weren't beyond his control. Who but, who but God himself could dictate where he would be born and how he would be born rather miraculously? Who but God could dictate where he would die and, and how he would die? There, there could be no doubting that Jesus was the one, that Jesus was the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head, the very first messianic prophecy in the Old uh, Testament, that, that he would be a descendant of David, that through whom all the nations of the world, uh, or a descendant of Abraham, I should have said, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, that he would be a descendant of David, who would sit forever on David's throne, that he would be the Christ, the Son of God, who bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we could become sons and daughters of God. Now, I suppose at this point you could throw out, you know, the, the Old and New Testament as fabricated nonsense written, you know, as some professors want to suggest today, you know, after the fact, but history, you see, would not be on your side. The historical record is clear. You've got to do something with these fulfilled, miraculous messianic prophecies. This is what our study in the Gospel of Mark has been all about. It has been, I have been suggesting, it has been Mark's purpose to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the, the, the Son of God, the, that He was indeed the expected Messiah to come. His birth, His life, in, in both His words and His works, His death and His, his resurrection, all in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said he was, he was put to death according to the Scripture, buried and raised again, all according to the Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament. All of those prophecies proved it beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt. And there could only be one Christ. And Jesus is He. Last week I told you that we would be taking a break from our study in Mark, at least where we would be next, and abbreviating our worship services last week and this week because we want to make sure that you have the time to visit our volunteer fair. More than that, we want to encourage you to not just visit the fair but to sign up. And to join us in the work. This is, you see, the responsibility of elders and ministry leaders. Uh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be calling and equipping the, the saints for works of service. And, and so I'm trusting that having had time to prayerfully consider your spiritual gifts and, and passions, uh, um, th th that you're ready to sign up. But we want to challenge you to use your gifts and your skills and your passions and your experiences and your personality, all of that kind of rolled up into one to, uh, to serve with us in the work of the gospel th through this church. So again, this morning, uh, the, the worship service is going to be um, shortened to give you time, the time that you need to sign up to serve this, this body of Christ. We had a number of people do that last week, and I'm trusting that we have many more this week. But here we are, this first Sunday of the month, 
And I am simply going to prepare us for our time around the Lord's table in communion because, you see, I want to remind us what this is all about. This is a little bit more than just a Sunday morning hangout. This is just a little bit more than something that we've done traditionally, and we, it's a little bit more than just a club. I, I want to remind you that, 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 that Jesus proved who He was. Mark recorded it for us. He proved it by His words and His works. He proved it by f- fulfilling perfectly, not some, but all of the Old Testament prophecies. There can be no doubting it. There can be no dismissing it. You've got to do something with this truth. And in fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, Jesus came, you see, to fulfill a very certain purpose, a very specific purpose. And it's what we remember around the table this morning. Mark records it for us in, in chapter 10. I thought, well, let's just go ahead and go to Mark. Mark ten forty five. Some suggest that this is the theme verse of the book. I tend to agree, but if not, it at least tells us why Jesus, as the Christ, the very Son of God, it tells us why He came, why He gave His life um, as He did. Read it with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is speaking, and He says these words, For even... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now, we're going to look at that verse more closely within its context when we get to Mark 10 later, but I want to point out several key points here as we prepare for the table. First, I, I, you know, I can't resist highlighting that our Christ served, highlighting this during our volunteer fair when we're encouraging you to to serve if you want to be like Jesus. The context of the passage is this. For, For now, the third time, Jesus has just foretold His coming suffering He had said back in verses 33 and 34 of of this chapter, behold, he's talking to his disciples. He said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles who will then mock him and and, and spit on him and scourge him, and and they're going to kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. He he says, we're on our way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the Son of Man, his favorite self-designation, the, the, the Son of Man is going to be handed over, and I am going to die. <laughs> Next verse. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, cool, Jesus, we, we want you to give us something. Grant whatever it is that we ask. Grant that we may suffer, uh, excuse me, that we may sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory. Jesus has just predicted his suffering to come very shortly, and these two disciples have the audacity to come to Jesus and say, hey, as long as we're going, give us seats of honor. It's almost as if they didn't hear what Jesus said, you see. This has always been our biggest problem, to think that this is all about us. And it's in this context that Jesus is going to say, this is why I came. And I'm suggesting if you want to be like Him, we've got to recognize what He did. Jesus, you see, responds with these words. That's what Gentile rulers want. 
They want to lord their authority over people. They, they want it to be about them, but, 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 but it's not to be that way w- w- with you. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, I'm suggesting the way of the Christian life, exampled by Jesus himself, is a life of service. That's what we're encouraging, indeed challenging you to do, remembering from last week that by doing so, it is for the good of this body, it is in fact for your good, and it is for the glory of our great Christ. The second thing I would point out, I want you to notice that word, even. Kind of an interesting word. Uh, the, the verse, I believe in, in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. What that means is I believe that every word that is in the Scripture is there for a reason. Every word is inspired. And, and, and yet we look at this verse and the, the, it would make sense without the word even there. For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. But the word even is there in the Greek. This is a correct translation. So, so why? Why the word? Well, for even the Son of Man Well, why? Well, because the title, Son of Man, which again was Jesus' favorite title for himself, comes from Daniel chapter 7 in verses 13 and 14. Listen to what those verses say. I kept looking in the night visions, and, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. There it is, the Son of Man. He's coming. And, and, he, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. That's God. And, and was presented to him. And to him, to, to Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and, and men of every language might serve him. There it is. Right? The Son of Man's going to be served. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one in which He will not be destroyed. I mean, this is incredible. This, the Jews understood that this was a messianic prophecy, and they expected this Son of Man. They expected the Messiah to come with great dominion and great authority and great glory, and all the peoples of the earth would bow down and, and worship Him, especially those filthy, rotten Romans, and, and His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. Is that true? You bet it is. Read the book of Revelation. But in his first coming, even the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King, with this glorious description, did not come to be served but to serve. Even the Son of Man. And serve he did. How? Well, the third thing I want you to notice. Jesus came to give his life. He, he, he came to give in an act of redeeming grace. Yeah, I want you to understand that they did not take his life from him. He says he came to, to give it. In, in the, the, the Good Shepherd Discourse in John chapter 10, Jesus says these words. He says, I am the good shepherd. The the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it again. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, he says it again. I laid down my life for the sheep. It's like he's trying to get a point across. For this reason, the Father loves me, even uh, because I laid down my life. Okay, we get it. So that I may take it up again. Notice, no one has taken it away from me. 
but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. You couldn't take it if I didn't lay it down. Two of my very favorite stories, I tell them all the time. I'm going to tell them again. John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's just finished praying. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying, and he wakes them up because the soldiers with the, with the swords and the clubs, they're coming to get him, a big group of people, and, and they, they, they come into the garden, and, and Jesus looks at them says, who is it that you're looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Not what your translation. It doesn't literally say, I am he. He says, I am. And when he says, I am, they fall back and fall to the ground on their faces because, because you see, he was saying, I am the I am. I want you to understand who I am. And they could not help but fall on their faces. You see, he's wanting them to understand, I am laying down my life. You couldn't take it from me if I didn't allow it. Next chapter, chapter 19, Jesus is standing before um, Pilate and before his accusers is silent. Remember that, Isaiah 53. And, and so Pilate gets a little frustrated with that and, and he's interrogating him and, and Jesus isn't answering and he says, who, listen, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power to, to, to crucify you or the power to release you? And Jesus speaks up then and he says, you would have no power over me at all, no authority over me at all if I'm not giving you from above. I want you to understand that I've come to lay down my life. You couldn't take it, Pilate. I came to lay down my life. Jesus came for the express purpose of giving his life through painful, sacrificial, substitutionary death on a cross, giving his life, laying it down for us, for his sheep. He knows us. He calls us by name. The last thing I want you to notice as we prepare for the table back in Mark 10 is this. Jesus came to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. What does this word ransom mean? It speaks of a price of release. It's a payment made, for example, to release a prisoner of war or a slave or a captive, a uh, here it's a payment made to redeem us, that is to release us out of our slave, uh, excuse me, out of the slave market of sin. We're held captive. We're born dead in trespasses and sin. And so a ransom is paid to release us, to redeem us from that slave market. Here's the question, to whom was the ransom paid? In the early church, it was widely held, quite popular, that the ransom was paid to Satan since he held sinners captive to do his will. Jesus paid the price to Satan to take the keys and to free us. Maybe you've even heard some contemporary songs that promote that particular idea. I want you to understand that most today rightly reject that notion. There is never an Stick with me. An indirect object here identified. That is, he paid a ransom, but to whom? It's never clearly stated. And again, most today reject this idea that Jesus paid Satan anything. I want to remind you, I've said it before, that Satan is God's Satan. He didn't owe him anything. As if Satan deserved anything. 
If anything, it is suggested that Jesus paid a ransom to his own father to satisfy the just demand of his righteousness and our rebellion. That's the ransom that was paid. You see, sins must be atoned. And by his substitutionary atonement, Jesus perfectly met the demands of justice. Paying his father to ransom, uh, paying the ransom to purchase us, to redeem us, to buy us, to make us his own. Steep price this ransom that was paid. And, and, and this is what we remember as we go to the table. Jesus, our great high priest, came to, to, to bring an offering, a, a sacrifice, and the offering or the sacrifice was himself to serve us by giving himself a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, this is an incredible truth. It is indeed a truth that should never become common. It should never grow old. The, 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 the eternal truth that before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew his sheep and that he would come and that he would serve us by giving, giving up his, laying down his life, giving up his life as a ransom to purchase us from the rebellion of our own making and call us and make us his own, buy us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Thank you for the great price that was paid. In Jesus' name, amen.